This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Acts chapter 1. We'll be looking at the rest of the chapter, picking up where we did last time. So we'll begin at verse 12 and continue through the end of the chapter at verse 26. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, <clears throat> Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, just as your church has done from the very beginning, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would illuminate our hearts and minds that we might understand the things in your word. That we might rightly know and apply them in our lives and in our church. And I pray most of all that we would be comforted and assured by the gospel, by the hope of glory that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ that we would be faithful to bear his name in a lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you've ever attempted any sort of work, any sort of task, you probably come to recognize the need to have proper tools, proper equipment for the thing that you're doing. Just to use a recent and negative example, last week during the cold snap where, you know, it got to be around 20 below and 40 mile an hour winds and all the fun that that brought, uh, the chimney on our furnace froze up, and if it gets too much ice on it, the, chim the furnace has some safety feature that the furnace won't start because it's not ventilating properly, and so that ice has to be broken off. Now again, this was when it was 40 mile an hour wind, 20 below, so we knew there was no calling for help. I mean, I'm sure maybe some of you would have tried to get here, but that just wouldn't have been nice. Um, so we had to make do with what we had to get the ice off the chimney. So what it came down to is in the cold temperatures and the wind, uh, me climbing up on a ladder. And we found a couple of pieces of old gutter laying around and pieced them together. And basically up there on the roof in the wind, just swinging that thing around and hitting it against the chimney. And then the ice finally did fall off. It did work. Um, I'm sure it was quite a sight to see. Some of you probably wish you had been here just to see that. Uh, that's an example of not having the proper tools, the proper equipment for a job. I went and bought a pole saw this week, so it should be much easier next time. But anyway, in the book of Acts, we see the early history of the greatest task, the greatest undertaking in the history of the world the building of Christ's church. Many throughout history have often thought about and treated the building and the growth of the church as something done quickly and spontaneously and with great unbridled enthusiasm. We just need to drop everything, get to the work of missions, get to the work of revival. We don't even need to think about the why and the how or are we properly prepared to do the work that God has set before us. And yet, that's not how the church begins. At the end of our passage last week, before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his disciples not to just get out there and start preaching the gospel, just leave everything else behind. He told them to wait. They needed to be prepared. They needed proper equipping. There were things that they needed for the task ahead of building the church that they did not yet have. And so in the remainder of chapter 1, we see that preparation, we see that equipping going on. And we will look at these preparations today in three points. First, we see prayer in verses 12 through 14. In preparation for what is to come, God's people devote themselves to prayer. Second, we see prophecy in verses 15 through 22. We see that the disciples search and know and proclaim and apply God's word as they prepare for what is to come. And third, we see provision in verses 23 through 26. As God's people pray, and pay their attention to the word, God provides laborers for his work. So prayer, prophecy, and provision, these are our points for this morning. So first we see prayer in verses 12 through 14. 
Before his departure, back in verse 4, Jesus commanded his disciples to remain in Jerusalem. They needed to wait for what was to come, which would be the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We'll see that in chapter 2. But before Pentecost, there had to be preparation. And so we see the apostles return to Jerusalem. They enter the upper room where they had been set, where they had been staying. Probably the same upper room we saw them in a couple times near the end of the Gospel of John. We also get here a list of the 11 remaining disciples. Remember, of course, that Judas betrayed Jesus and died thereafter. So leaving behind Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and the other Judas. Now here we get a list of the 11 remaining disciples. Some like to take this list, compare it against other lists in other gospels, other books. And then they'll say, well, see, the Bible contradicts itself. You can't even agree on the same 12 disciples. And yet many of the disciples were known by multiple names. Just for example, Matthew, author of the first gospel, is elsewhere referred to as Levi. Peter, as you probably know, used to be Simon. This isn't a big deal. Most people of that day knew at least three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Some might have even known Latin as the Roman Empire was ascendant, and so They'd often have different names in all these different languages. And particularly, uh, these disciples had different names and would be referred to by different names, by different authors in different books. But so these 11 disciples are now together back in the upper room. And we see that their preparation begins with prayer. Now, what kind of prayer would it be? We're not told here, in general, what kind of praying they did for that time they were there. But we do know that the apostles would have received Jesus' teachings in prayer, such as the Lord's Prayer, which is given not just as a prayer in itself for us to pray, but as a guide in prayer. You might remember as we were working through the Catechism in our services near the end of last year, We got to the part about the Lord's Prayer where it would go through line by line and tell us what each of these parts of the Lord's Prayer meant about how we were to pray. The disciples heard that. They were there. They knew about that. And then as Jesus prepared to depart, as he prepared to ascend, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and the things he had taught them so they would have understood, okay, this is how we are to pray. They were engaging in that sort of prayer, the full range of biblical prayer for God's glory, for the building of his kingdom, for his will to be done, for deliverance from sin and temptation, for repentance of sin, and for daily needs. At this point, they wouldn't have been quite sure what else was coming, what Jesus was having them wait for, but they knew how to pray and to whom they prayed, and they committed themselves to prayer. Now we see that there are others present besides the remaining 11 apostles in this prayer meeting. We see that there are women there, including Mary, Jesus' mother. We also get a new and surprising development that Jesus' brothers are there. Now in the Gospels, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. They at various times opposed him. 
rejected him or they wanted to take him home and stop his public teaching lest he get himself in more trouble. But now Jesus' brothers are numbered among the faithful. Just for example, James, one of Jesus' half-brothers, would end up being the pastor of the church in Jerusalem once it was established. He would write the book of James. Another of Jesus' brothers was Jude, who wrote the book of Jude. Now this ought to give hope and encouragement to those who know and love people who do not believe. Jesus' family had gone from doubters to disciples. God revealed to them the glories of Christ and worked faith in them unto salvation. And so we see, even prior to Pentecost, that the church is taking shape. People of all sorts, together and committed to prayer. Now we see there are clear leaders and officers, at this time the 11 remaining apostles. We'll get back to that more in a minute. But then there's also these other laypersons who are apart, and they are praying and seeking God's will and leading in what is to come next. But that is not all that they do. This brings us to our next point. After prayer, we come to prophecy in verses 15 through 20. So during this time of waiting and prayer, we see that Peter stands up and addresses this assembly. This is the first of several of Peter's addresses in the book of Acts. We see at this point there are 120 total disciples of Jesus present at the time. And when Peter gets up to speak to them, he addresses them from and concerning Scripture. This is a biblical exhortation, even a sermon, if you will. At issue this time is the fact that there are 11 apostles. Peter acknowledges that it was a fulfillment of Scripture that Judas betrayed Jesus and perished. But in doing so, he also makes some important statements about what Scripture is, where it comes from, and how it should be used and understood. Peter talks about the Scripture being spoken by the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David. Peter refers to what David prophesied concerning Judas. This is in Psalm 41.9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. There it was prophesied that Judas would betray Jesus. What Peter is also affirming here is what theologians know as the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. And I know that you use all those words all the time, so I don't have... No. What they mean is that the words of the Bible, so verbal, all of them, all of its parts, so plenary, are inspired by God through his Holy Spirit. Now, among other things, this puts to rest a question I raised last time about, was the Holy Spirit present and working before Pentecost and before the New Testament? Yes, he was. And one of the principal works of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture is Scripture itself. The Holy Spirit carrying along human authors and through their human means and agency, inspiring them to speak and write and preserve the very Word of God. Now, this doctrine of inspiration is often misunderstood. 
the great Dutch Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff describes the problem well. Some take incorrect views of inspiration. One of these is known as a mechanical view of inspiration. Basically the idea that that God holds the pen and writes the words directly with no agency or input from the human authors. Almost like they go into some kind of trance and then God just does all the writing. Others take an incorrect view known as the dynamical view of inspiration that said, and this is a common modernist and liberal view, that the authors were inspired by the Spirit, but, but maybe not all of their words, which this, of course, destroys any idea of biblical inerrancy or inf- infallibility. In opposition to this, Verbal plenary inspiration, or as Burkhoff calls it, organic inspiration, asserts that God used the human faculties of human authors to do the writing of Scripture, and yet prompted what they said by His Holy Spirit and preserved it for us. So here we have Peter, a real man, addressing a real and present and practical problem in the church, and yet he is doing so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a way that will be recorded and preserved for us also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as Scripture. So Peter addresses here this matter of Judas having been a part of their number and yet having betrayed Jesus and died. Now Luke, also in verses 18 and 19, records a bit of a gory description of these details, how the field was purchased with the silver that that Judas had betrayed Jesus for, how Judas died there and burst open, how this field became known as the field of blood. Now these verses here, your Bible probably has them in parentheses. This is probably Luke's interjection here of historical facts. It's probably not a part of what Peter said, but it's recorded so that just in case you didn't know, this is what happened to Judas. His blood money paid for the field, and then Judas hanged himself there, was left to hang there until his insides poured out. Again, it's a gory picture, but it's not just included here to be gory or gratuitous. It is included here to show that this was God's judgment. But also this came in fulfillment of Scripture. Now Peter, having acknowledged the prophetic significance of Judas's betrayal, teaches that the Psalms also prophesy that Judas should be replaced. So here, led by the Holy Spirit, Peter quotes two other psalms. He quotes Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. So Judas is gone. He has vacated his office, and so another ought to fill in. Peter then sets forth the criteria of who should fill the apostolic office. Now, first, he says that this new apostle should be chosen from men. Many egalitarians and feminists try to make the case for how there were women who held office in the early church. But here, among the apostles, only men hold the office, and only men are sought as replacements and successors. But besides that, what else ought to be true of the next apostle? Well, he should have been with them the whole time, from the baptism of John to the day of ascension. 
Someone who had seen and heard and learned the same things they had from Jesus. If someone was to be one of Christ's witnesses, they needed to have witnessed Christ, particularly his ministry, his miracles, his teachings, his life, his death, his resurrection. Now, this is not to say that these would be the only sort of people who would ever be Christ's witnesses. We'll see through Acts how the office of apostle, which was particular to the church, gives way to the office of elder, which continues down to this day. But the fact that we all know Christ means that people bear witness to Christ that never saw him. But for the apostles, it was important that they had. One of the reasons for this is that one of the tasks of the apostles was to record their witness of Christ in Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that that witness might remain for future generations. And that's what happened. Matthew and John wrote their own eyewitness accounts in their Gospels. Mark was probably recording Peter's account. And then Luke did a compiled and researched account from all different kinds of sources. And he also worked with Paul, so likely got some of his information from Paul. So the apostles had seen and witnessed Christ, and then their words would be recorded for the church to use throughout the rest of history. Now later on, we'll see others who are also apostles, but not part of this 12. Paul, being the most well-known example, he'll be commissioned for the special task of being an apostle to the Gentiles. As we will learn later in Acts, when we meet him, he was not with the disciples, or was not with Jesus during his incarnation, but Jesus will call him and use him and specially teach him all the same. There are others in the New Testament, like Barnabas, who are called apostles. But this particular group, this group that was with Jesus, they are to have 12, and so they must pick another. And this brings us to our final point. After prayer and prophecy, we come to provision in verses 23 through 26. We see that two men are set forth who met Peter's criteria. There is this Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, again, showing that people can have multiple names. This guy has three. And then the much simpler named Matthias. These two would have been with them the whole way. They would have been witnesses to Jesus' ministry. But after having set these two aside, the next thing they do is pray. They trust that because of what has been illuminated to them by the Holy Spirit from Scripture, that one of these two is going to replace Judas in their number. And they call upon the Lord, who is the searcher of hearts, who knew all things. Jesus, who knew and chose them, knew which of these two was supposed to be chosen, for only one could take Judas's place. Now there also is a note in this prayer about Judas. The ministry and apostleship was one from which Judas, by transgression, fell. He sinned in the most egregious of ways. He betrayed his Lord into the hands of sinful men. And Judas showed regret and remorse from his sin, but he did not show repentance. And so he goes to his own place, as the prayer says. Judas went to hell. Judas went to a place that the rest of the apostles did not go, 
and could not go and would not go. And we also see that they choose between these two men by a casting of lots. This would be something similar to rolling a dice or flipping a coin. Probably the sort of thing that we as modern enlightened people would think of as an act of random chance. But nothing really happens by random chance. All things happen according to God's purpose and plan and governance. For more on that, come tonight and we'll be talking about God's hand of providence in the life of Joseph, even through evil and wickedness around him. But all that to say, this casting of lots to pick between these two men might seem a bit strange to us. It's probably not the means we would prefer. We just had our annual meeting on Wednesday. We elected and re-elected church officers. So what if instead of electing, we just drew numbers out of a hat or rolled a dice to see who the church officers would be? Now, that doesn't mean that they were wrong to use lots in this case. Many times in Scripture, lots were cast, even appointed by God to make decisions and to choose people for things. Because all things are within God's hand of providence, even something like casting lots is according to his will. Proverbs 16.33 states this explicitly. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And yet it is important to note that this will be the last time in Scripture that lots are used to make a decision like this. After this, the Holy Spirit will be poured out, and with that will come clear knowledge and instruction for God's people concerning His Word and concerning His church. See, the next time men are needed for an office, that'll be in Acts 6 when they begin to have deacons. And there the apostles will command the church to select men from among them. There's a nomination and election process, sort of like what we use now. You elect your elders and pastors and deacons. But in this unique case, they did cast lots. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he became the twelfth apostle. So, now, per Jesus' command, the apostles and the other believers, they've returned to Jerusalem. They've waited. While they were there, they prayed. They sought God's will. They took care of the church's first business meeting, appointing an apostle to fill a vacancy. The stage is now set for what comes next, which will be the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and we'll begin to look at that, Lord willing, next time. But for now, let us reflect on the truths we have seen in this passage today. First, God's people are to assemble together. They are to devote themselves to prayer, to the seeking of the will of the Lord and the waiting on the illumination of the Spirit. If we desire to see God work in us and in our families and in our church and in our community and in our world, this is where we ought to begin. We don't want to be rushing off into a battle without weapons or rushing into a job without the proper tools and equipment. We wait on the Lord we seek the Lord's will. We pray to the Lord that he might open our eyes. And so many want to rush into action without proper preparations and provisions, and they reap the reward of their folly. 
Christ's church is to first and foremost be a praying people and also to be a people of the word. As the apostles did, God's people are to search and know and hear and apply the scriptures. While we do not do so inerrantly and infallibly as the apostles did in the upper room meeting, we still have the scriptures, which themselves are inerrant and infallible, and they bear witness to Christ. They instruct us in his church. They instruct us as individuals in how we are to live before the face of God. Most of all, the scriptures reveal to us the gospel, the truth of salvation, that though we are all fallen sinners deserving of death and hell, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man, fulfilled all righteousness, kept the law perfectly in our place, suffered the wrath of God as the penalty for our sin, so that through faith in him works by the Holy Spirit, we might be saved. And those whom Christ saves, he unites to his church, this one body, properly ordered, being a people of prayer and people of the word, and a people who bears witness to Christ and will continue to do so until Christ returns. So my hope and prayer today is that we, as God's people gathered here, would be that sort of people, that sort of church. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word by which you reveal the truth concerning our salvation, the truth concerning how we ought to live in this, in this world. We thank you also for prayer. We thank you that we may approach you, that uh, we may speak with you, that you reveal your truth to us, that you have instructed us in how we ought to pray. And I pray that we would be faithful and diligent to these things, to prayer and to your word, both gathered together as a corporate body and also as individuals and in our lives. I pray for the work of your gospel. I pray most of all that if there's any here today who do not have faith in Christ, that by your Holy Spirit you would work it in them unto salvation. I pray for those who do know Christ, that they would bear his name into a lost and dying world that needs to hear, empowered by your word and by your spirit to do so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.